there. Uh, this is week four of a series called One Thing. If you're new, we just kicked this off at Easter, and this is Awaken's missional focus for the next year. Uh, so, Eric, can you bump up the lights just a little bit more for me so uh, we can read what we're looking at? That would be awesome. Thanks, bud. Um, and hunger is the issue that we feel God has kind of led us to. So uh, today I want to I talk a little bit about the gospel and the importance of justice. And the last few weeks, if you have been with us, we've talked about justice, we've talked about poverty, we've talked about this idea of shalom uh, being this, this Hebrew concept, of course, that was at the beginning when God made the earth. We talked about restorative and retributive justice and the difference between the two. And I want to start with this question. How is it that we have lost this aspect of faith that we heard in all of these passages? Uh, how is it that somehow in the midst of, and, and I asked Ben to, to play this song, which is a bit provocative, yes, I recognize, maybe a little over the top, but that's kind of the point um, to get us thinking about some of the things that, that are said in the song. Uh, in the midst of our culture, in the midst of the West, in the midst of evangelicalism, how have we lost or how have we divorced belief and action from one another? Uh, <clears throat> how many of you have been to camp before? You know, like, uh, you know, church camp growing up as a kid, or you've been to some kind of, some place, some church experience where the gospel has been presented, right? Where there, and this was the big night, you know, it's usually Friday or Saturday night on a retreat, it's Friday night at the end of the week at camp, it's the kind of the big message, right? It's the gospel presentation. And typically what happens is the following, some uh, person speaks and uh, says a lot of things, but they get to the end of it and they say basically this, here's the deal, guys, you're a sinner, Everybody's a sinner. Jesus died for our sins. If you trust Jesus for your, uh, to be your personal savior, then you, don't, then you get to go to heaven and not hell. Right? And this is the gospel. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and none of that's wrong. Uh, I don't disagree with any of that. But I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, and that's it. And when we talk about the gospel, I think we have to do better than that. I think we have, to do, we have to do justice to it. We have to fill it out a little bit more because I think what we're hearing when we hear that is a pretty anemic, uh, reduced version of the gospel. And I want to try and flush that out a little bit today. Uh, it may seem that I'm ungrateful or uh, negative on evangelicalism. And for the most part, I'm not. But I think that those of us that find ourselves in the midst of a particular situation, uh, it's hard to have an objective view when you're, when, you, when you're in the middle of it, right? So if you're a part of something, it's hard to have an objective view. And I think it's, it's a good thing for us to be honest at times and just say, what exactly are we talking about here? And, and are there anything, is there anything that we're missing in this? And so that's what I want to do today. Uh, in spite of all the biblical evidence, that whole list of passages that I read today, how is it that we have separated faith in Jesus from social action in the world? How is it that we have, despite overwhelming evidence, that social justice or social gospel is kind of a negative word among evangelicals and among church-going folks? How is it that we've separated belief and action? How is it that we've gotten to the place where leaders of evangelical movements say things like, let the liberals feed their stomachs and we'll feed their souls. As if to say, feeding people's stomachs really isn't all that important, but feeding their souls is really what we should be doing as the church. How have we gotten to that place? Because I think it's pretty uh, lame to be frank and to not say anything I regret. I think maybe we've taken our cues from a rock band in the 90s. Now, you gotta keep one. them separated. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, any, who is that? That's the offspring. Thank you very much. I thought that was Green Day when I first started, uh, had that idea, and somebody told me, that's actually not Green Day. Um, got to keep them separated. We got to keep separated. It's joking. You know, it's funny, but in all seriousness. We've separated belief and action. How have we gotten to that point? I want you to turn to Isaiah 58, and we're going to start here. And uh, I want to highlight, and I want to start with the importance of justice, and then I want to go on and and ask a couple of uh, really important questions about this. So Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 to 3 says this, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. This is God speaking to Israel, and he says, Declare to my people their rebellion, and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out and they seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near to them. Now, a couple of thoughts on this passage. There's a real paradox that's set up in verses 1, comparatively, verses 1 to to verse 2. And the author, I think, does this on purpose. Uh, the, The paradox is, verse 1 says, Israel is this group of people who are in total rebellion. So the prophet Isaiah says, this is Israel, and you as a people are in complete and total rebellion. You're doing everything that you shouldn't be doing, and what God has asked you to do, you're not doing. And then it goes on and it says, uh, it, says, it shows the religious pedigree of these people. And the, and the translation, unfortunately, kind of minimizes the stark contrast that, that we get in verse 1 and 2. Because it says, they seem eager. They, they seek me out, uh, and they seem eager to do my will, as if they were a nation that you know, is interested in what I'm, what I'm about. And if you look at the actual text in the original language, they kind of implied like they seem eager to do this as if they were a nation. That's not really what it says. It should read more like they are passionate, they seek me out. They're passionate to know my ways and to be a nation that does what is right. So essentially what's happening is this. Israel as a people group are doing all of the things that they should be doing, right? They're fasting, they're going to temple, uh, the, the ledger at, at the tithing, you know, the tithing ledger at the temple is up to snuff and everything's going well and they're praying and they're doing these things and they reply back in verse four, like God's not answering our prayers and we, we're doing these things and God's not showing up. We're coming towards God, but God's not coming towards us. What's the deal? And the, the prophet says, they are a group of people who are, Uh, uh, Tim Keller, one guy that I've been reading a lot of, he says this. He says, their worship and obedience to the law is punctilious and fastidious. He's a really smart guy. Uh, And yet God does not answer their prayers. Verse 3, they complain. He's not answering our prayers. He's not noticing our religious devotion. He's not paying attention to the attendance rules and all that kinds of thing. Maybe you could say it this way. It appears that God is not impressed with their religious conviction nor is he impressed with their pedigree or their, the degree to which they're obeying the law when they are not participating in acts of justice and compassion to the most vulnerable among them. Culturally, this group of people has everything in place. They're Jewish, they're God's people, they're, they've been circumcised, they're tithing, they're praying, they're fasting, they're sacrificing, and God is effectively saying, you think you know me, but you don't. Because you're not participating in acts of justice and compassion towards the most vulnerable and the poor among you. Let me see if I can translate to our context. It would appear that you could be affiliated with the right denomination. 
Uh, you can be clear on all the theological convictions, whether you're Calvinist or Arminianist or even take it another step further, open theist. Uh, you could be dedicated as a baby and then baptized as an adult. Or if you come from a different tradition, you could be baptized as, as an infant and then confirmed as a young adult. You could attend small group. You could attend Bible study. You could, your tithe rolls could be up to snuff. Your attendance rolls could be per- perfect, punctilious, and fastidious. And it's as if God is saying effectively, you think you know me, but in fact you don't. I mean, that's really what we're getting here, if we're just going to cut through the chase and get right down to it, which is a bit problematic. I'm guessing that some of you, including myself, that doesn't really sit very well, right? We're going to get a little hot under the collar. We start to sweat a little. We start to say, who do you think you are saying that? You can't determine whether or not I know God or I don't know God, Mr. Preacher Man, Micah guy. Maybe you don't think that. I don't know. I'm just putting that on you. Maybe you could say it this way. A deep social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to others and especially the poor is the inevitable sign of real faith and a love relationship with God. Let me say that again. A deep social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to others and especially the poor is the inevitable sign of real faith and a love relationship with God. The Bible seems to be saying that faith equals Belief in something and action. The gospel, therefore, is not believe this only. The gospel is belief and action married together, never separated, offspring, never separated, always kept together. How is it that we've gotten to the place as Christians in the context we live in where the gospel presentation is primarily believe this set of things about Jesus and what he did historically and truthfully and factually and all of that resurrection, the whole deal. Believe that, trust him for salvation because you can't do it on your own and you will be saved. And that's the gospel and that's the end. Come on forward, I'll pray for you. You can raise your hand, sit where you are, see that hand. (laughs) How is it that we've gotten to that point? This is is mind-boggling to me. And it's really, honestly, it is really problematic. Because other than Romans 10, uh, 8, 9, and 10, which says, believe, in your, believe, with, uh, uh, believe with your, in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then you will be saved. Find me, one, find me another passage that basically sums up the gospel presentation that we've been giving all, for who knows how long. The gospel, at least as I see it, and as the, I think the Bible sees it, is belief in something and action. Connected together, never separated. You cannot have one without the other. You think you know me, and yet you don't. Over and over again, this is the sign, the stamp, the marker of a a person who is in a love relationship with God, who follows Jesus. It's love and care for the most vulnerable and the poor and the broken among us. Period. End. Bottom line. You cannot get around it. And if you want to continue to deny that, fine. But I think if we're going to do this one thing thing, then we've got to come clean and we have to be honest about what we're talking about. You cannot have one. You must have both. I think they're inseparable. Why do we separate them? Now, I'll I'll warn you here for just a moment. What I'm about to do is uh, geek, total geek factor, okay? Like, if you think I'm a geek now, this is going to put you over the top or put me over the top in your mind's eye. And I want to just, I want to challenge you and I want to ask you, um, don't check out here. 
Because what I'm about to do is really, really historical. It's really, really uh, theological. It's really, it's in depth. And it kind of goes through some, some different periods of history. But I think it's absolutely critical to answer this question, why have we separated the two? So are you all still with me so far? In fact, turn up the, is there somebody over there? Turn up the lights even more so that I don't lose anybody. Because I feel like it's still dark in here. Do we have that thing all the way cranked up? Give it all to me, Eric. I want it bright in here. Why do we separate them? A fair question. I think we must discuss it. Here we go. There we go. Oh, not those ones. The house lights. The house, not on me. The house lights. There we go. There we go. You don't need to see more of me. I want to see more of you. There we go. Thank you. I appreciate it. First and foremost, okay, how would I answer this question? A couple ways. I would say first, the Enlightenment, Descartes and Kant in the 1930s. Okay? I know. This is really geeky, but stick with me. I promise it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off. The Enlightenment, Descartes and Kant, two different people, and then the 1930s. First, the Enlightenment. Here's a little definition of the Enlightenment, a little historical lesson for us. The Enlightenment is the era in the Western philosophy, intellectual, scientific, and cultural life centered upon the 18th century. Reason was advocated as the primary source for legitimacy and authority. It's also known as the age of reason. BTWs, pause for just a moment. If there's any, at any point you, you're completely lost, this is dialogical. I want you to say, stop, I, I don't get it, okay? So, do we, are, we, are we okay so far? The Enlightenment, this is a period of time, kind of 18th century, where reason, the ability to think well, is kind of the primary thing in people's minds. It's a philosophical thing that's going on in history. We're all still tracking so far. Okay, uh, the... The Enlightenment, it's not necessarily a single movement or school of thought. It's not like a, an, a set of ideas, but more a set of values that are kind of overarching. And there's lots of divergent viewpoints within the Enlightenment. But here's the thing. At its core, there is a questioning of traditional institutions, customs, and morals, and a strong belief in rationality and science. Okay, this is coming on the heels of the empiricism and like the, the scientific uh, method, you know, uh, if you can taste it, touch it, smell it, all that kind of stuff. So this is what's going on. Now enter two people named Descartes and Kant. Does anybody remember Descartes' famous phrase? I think, therefore, I am. Cogito ersum in Latin. Uh, I think, therefore, I am. Here's what's happening. Descartes, he's a philosopher, and he's trying, to, he's trying to get to the basic understanding of what's called epistemology. Epistemology is a theory or a, a way in which we know something to be true. Okay? And there's different ways that cultures uh, actually seek after and legitimate truth. So Descartes on this, this hunt to find out, what, how do we know something's absolutely true? Because everything's changing in the Enlightenment. Lots of different things. The way in which we see the world, Galileo, Copernicus, science, science is uncovering all kinds of things. So how do we know something's true? And he, he comes up with this thing called foundationalism, where he doubts, it's a very skeptical method, he doubts everything, and the only thing he can't doubt, the, the one thing that he knows he exists by, is that he's a thinking being. So existence of humanity is based on this idea that I think, therefore I am. It's a very rational, cognitive thing, and this is, this is a huge uh, movement and, and voice into the Enlightenment. Then you have a guy named Kant who comes along, and he takes what Descartes says and moves it even further. He connects foundationalism, this theory of knowledge, with a very humanistic and a very intellectual kind of thing. Uh, he says this about the Enlightenment. He says, mankind's final coming of age. 
It's the emancipation of human consciousness from an immature state of ignorance and error. You follow what he's saying? He's saying that the Enlightenment is essentially like, it's the golden age of humanity. We have reached the point at which we can, we can discover, we can answer all of the questions. And we do it with reason and thought and intellectualism. So, no surprise, the Enlightenment gives, gives rise to this huge movement in our culture where intellect and reason and rationalism becomes the primary way in which we legitimate something that's true. Okay, so that's the Enlightenment Kant. Coming out of that, you have Hale, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They're all founded in this, this time frame. So you can see our culture's desire and longing for things that we can legitimate by thinking and how important this becomes. Remember, we're asking, why do we separate faith and works? Now enter into the 1900s. We have World War I, and in the 1940s, I think, is that right, World War II? In the 1900s, early 1900s, in Germany, this is like the hotbed of theology. For whatever reason, if you're going to do a PhD in anything theological, you cannot do it unless you know German. Because in the 1900s, everything that, was, uh, that meant anything about theology, and Protestant theology specifically, was coming out of Germany, And so you have this very liberal, uh, it's called German liberalism, and this other idea called higher criticism. And this is a way that we understand the Bible. Um, Coming out of Germany is this understanding of theology that's very philosophical, it's existential. And if you contrast that with with the, the, the typical theology that's very propositional, think of Calvin and Luther and some of the things they're saying, What's coming out of Germany and liberal, this liberal theology in, in, in the midst of the two wars, there's also this belief that we can usher into being the kingdom of God. That by the works that we do, by the things that we're involved in, the, the effort that we make, we can actually help usher in the kingdom of God. And we can help bring the, the kingdom that we're hoping for and waiting for that Jesus promised. And so therefore, people's involvement in the the alleviation of poverty and social issues is very, very high, right? Because if we believe that we can usher in the kingdom of God, then we should be working and doing all those sorts of things. So all this is happening in Germany. There's this drift that's happening in theology, in Protestant theology. Now, connect that to Nazi Germany, right? All the things that are coming out of Nazism. I say all of this to say, imagine you have a whole bunch of Protestant evangelicals in the West watching what's happening over here. The Enlightenment happens, Descartes, Kant, all these things are, are swimming around in this, in this pool of, of what's going on. And from it comes a very liberal, a very humanistic, uh, a very, and, and, and how we interpreted the Bible was kind of up for grabs. And it's all connected to social gospel stuff, Right? So you have this divorce, you have this distancing of Protestant evangelicals from anything that looks like that. Historians call this the great reversal. Prior to the 1900s, Protestant evangelical Christians are at the, forf- they are at the front lines of poverty alleviation in social and, and cultural situations. So if, if you don't get anything of what I just said, listen right now. Christians were at the for, they were on the front lines of poverty alleviation before the 1900s, and historians call this the great reversal between 1900 and 1930, where Protestant evangelicals begin to slink back into defending belief and orthodoxy because what 
action is connected to is liberal, German, higher critical craziness that's coming out of Europe. And by the time 1930 comes along, you have Christians who are no longer involved in this conversation in our culture. Friends, it's important for us to recognize why we separate faith and action has everything to do with theology. It has everything to do with the way in which theology and the church and the Bible gets, gets filtered through culture and context and what we do with that. A lot of people think that Christians aren't involved with poverty alleviation because of uh, political reasons, right? FDR, the New Deal, all these political things that are set in place in the 30s, and then Christians back up because I would argue that, that the political things that were offered in the 30s didn't, are not the primary cause. They may have exacerbated the issue, but the primary reason we find the separation of faith, belief, and action is theological and has to do with this historical thing that happened in the 30s. Are you all still tracking so far? So why do we separate belief? Why do we separate uh, belief and action? If we read in Scripture that it's everywhere, if you follow me, if you are God's people, if you follow Jesus, then you will care for, be among, work with, help to be uh, 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 an ambassador for the poor, the most vulnerable among you in your society. It is it is unmistakable. You cannot get around it. So why do we separate it? Why do we think that Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus is just about what we believe? Let me end with this. I would would challenge you to know what you believe and know what you might reject. There may be some of you here who who have had a real problem with Christianity, with with traditional religion, with institutional religion. Uh, And I don't know all of your stories. I've heard some of them. And and, and I'm I'm hearing this kind of thing come up over and over again. And I want to challenge you to know what you believe if you follow Jesus and to know what you've rejected or to know what you've been skeptical of. Do you get that at the heart, at the center of biblical faith, following Jesus is care for and and love of the poor and the most vulnerable among us. It is at the center of biblical faith. If you follow Jesus, do you recognize that? Do you know what you've signed up for? Maybe you went to camp and maybe you were presented the gospel and it was about what you believe and not necessarily what you do. And I want to challenge you. I want to ask you to ask the hard question of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does God require of me? What is he asking of me as a person who follows him? Is it to mentally assent to these particular propositions and dogmas and doctrines that Jesus was the son of God, he was born of a virgin Mary, all all the things. I love the Apostle Creed, it's a beautiful thing. But these are propositions about who God is and what the Bible is and how we respond to that. Is that the end? Is that the sum total of what it means to follow Jesus in the world? I would argue it's not. And I think if you're going to be honest about the scriptures, and if you, I mean, Jesus is one of his most famous parables in Matthew 25. He separates the sheep from the goats. And what's the difference? If you knew, if you loved the poor, the naked, the hungry, if you clothed the the, the people who were naked, if you visited the sick in prison, if you did those things and you did them to me, welcome, and I know you. When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? And he says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. For crying out loud, folks. How do we get around that? You have to do some hermeneutic gymnastics to get around this. And I think we've done a fine job for a long time. Do you know what you've signed up for? And I'm telling you, I am speaking to the, 
there's a mirror in front of me because as I'm studying and, I, and I'm reading this, we're having conversations about, okay, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for our neighbor, Jean, who has MS, who comes and walks by our house every day, who's honestly really hard to love sometimes. She's kind of annoying and she, uh, she's really needy, and she, uh, but what does it mean for me? The, she is the most vulnerable in my neighborhood. What does it mean for me and for Laura and for my family to love her? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. As much as believing that Jesus was the Son of God, he rose from the dead, he crucified the whole deal. It's not one or the other. It has to be both. And if you're a skeptic, if you're, if you're a person who's kind of like, you know, traditional religion, the whole Christianity thing, just not really into it. Uh, quite frankly, I, it's not been impressive. Do you recognize, do you realize that this is at the heart of biblical faith? That this is at the center of it. And we've done a terrible job of making that known. But this is at the center of it. Jesus equates following him with care for the most vulnerable among you. I cannot say it any more simply. So, friends, maybe you have some renegotiation to do. Maybe you, uh, maybe I (laughs) have some renegotiation to do about what does it mean for me to follow Jesus. And, and at the end of the day, what I'm after, what this community is after, what we're after, is to be a group of people who are faithful to the call of Jesus. This thing called the church that he has, call, that he has created and called people into is, is, is the means by which the story of God is told in the world. This, there's no plan B. We're it. We're it. And the church is, is the voice, is the hand, you know, terrible, trite, you know, bad songwriting, the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, and the voice, and the body, and the hugs, and the love, okay? The church is that in the world. And that's what we want to be a part of. And if that's what we want to be a part of, then we have to take seriously, and we have to, we have to ask the difficult questions of what does it mean to follow Jesus, and what is the gospel? How does justice connect to it? So if you're here and you follow Jesus... Here we go. And if you're a little skeptical, you've been a little gun shy, can I just say I'm sorry in one, in one breath and then the other breath say, this is the heart of biblical faith. A deep social conscience and, and, and a life poured out in acts of service to the, to, especially to the poor is the heart and the, the inevitable sign of a love relationship with God. That's all I've got. Let me pray. God, I ask that uh, what has been talked about, thought about, said, sung about, um, considered today, would not fall on deaf ears, that it wouldn't fall on hard soil, but I pray that the the seeds that have been sown today and throughout this series, God, would, would fall and would land in a place in our hearts where they grow. I pray that they would be watered by the grace that the gospel offers. I pray that, there, that guilt would, would just leave the room at this point, that we wouldn't feel guilty because as we will, we'll find next week, guilt does not last. It's a terrible motivator. But God, I pray that true Holy Spirit conviction where you hold a mirror up to our hearts and to our faces and to our lives and ask, will you follow me? And I pray that each of us, God, as, as individuals and as family members and as a community would begin to wrestle with this and ask the difficult questions of 
How do we hold together and continue to hold together belief? Because it's important to believe the, 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 the truth, what's true about the world and about you, God. And it's equally important to do what you've called us to do. Help us to marry those two. Help us to enjoin them and never separate them. And be a community that demonstrates and announces the way of Jesus in the world. God, that's what we're after. We can't do it alone. We need your spirit. Empower us. Breathe life into us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.